I'm sure you're aware we live in a world that increasingly sees itself as in warfare. They speak in terms of warfare, in terms of a war on terror, a war on poverty, a war on drugs and drunken driving. There's a war of, uh, against the AIDS epidemic, a war against cancer, a war against the middle class, a war against your freedom. There are cyber wars, there are cultural wars, there are economic wars. People see themselves in warfare all the time, or at least they like to cast themselves in that way. And it's only understandable because that communicates something, something of a readiness, something of an alertness, something of always being, if you will, on edge. It communicates danger and the need for vigilance. Unfortunately, too many Christians fail to grasp those concepts. They may see themselves in all these other wars, but they don't understand themselves in the war, the war of sin. Peter warns us of this, though. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And over and over again, the Bible speaks about us as being something of a soldier and in some sort of war and the need for us to always be vigilant because of that. Ed Welch, in his great book, The Banquet of the Grave, He writes this, he says, there's something about war that sharpens the senses, especially when the enemy constantly hides. Issues of life and death will do that. You hear a twig snap or the rustle of leaves and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant, end quote. We understand that. We understand That's the kind of mode that you're in in war. And so we understand when the Scripture calls us to that kind of warfare, that's the way we're going to have to fight it. That's the way we're going to win. This is what Paul has been trying to, if you will, orient us back to and orient the Corinthians to in this letter to help them understand that they're in something of a warfare, that they're in something of a boxing match, they're in something of a race against a stiff competition. Those are some of the images that he's used in this passage to try to awaken the Corinthians and awaken you and I to the battle that's in front of us, to the need to be alert, to have all of our senses trained in one direction. He was writing to this church and seemingly to many others that are unaware of the kind of battle they were in. Perhaps they felt like the battle was not all that important or the battle was not all that serious. And so Paul has given these severe warnings and a series of examples of the dangers of sin and evil desire and temptation and the consequences of not being aware of it. Example after example in the nation of Israel, how they misunderstood the dangers of sin and of their own desires and how they fell into God's judgment because of that. And he gives us this ominous warning in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. That comes after this series of examples for Israel, 
where Paul has been laying out not only their failures, but all of their privileges as well. You remember he opened up this chapter talking about how they had been blessed with a deliverance by God and a new identity through Moses in God. No longer were they considered slaves. Now they were God's people. Now they were a nation. Not only that, but they had been given supernatural food and supernatural drink and supernatural protection by their rock, who was God. All of these unimaginable privileges led to what is an equally unimaginable fall. In fact, over and over again, despite all of these privileges, they fell. They fell over and over again. Part of the lesson here is that the fall, while it may have been unimaginable, wasn't inevitable. They had resources. They had what was needed. They had spiritually given to them by God everything that was needed. Now, all the more we as recipients of privileges and of the new covenant, not only being in Moses, but in Christ, we who are partakers of so many of these privileges, we too have absolutely no reason to face the fight and fall short. Unless you begin to think that somehow because of the failures of Israel, because of so many who have fallen, unless you read the stories of Old Testament saints and their sins, or even lest you look at others who've gone before you, friends, leaders, parents, and you've seen their fall and their stumble, and you think that somehow it's inevitable that you follow the same path, lest you think all of that is true, lest you think that holiness is necessarily an unrealistic concept, a pie-in-the-sky mentality, lest you begin to think that all of the pervasive pressures of temptation and all the inevitable environment of your desires, that somehow you are destined to defeat, Paul adds one more profound and important verse to this profound passage regarding our battle with sin. He writes in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. For all those who face the battle of temptation and begun, begun to wonder if the battle's worth it. For those who begin to wonder if there's any such thing as victory. For those who have wondered why so many have fallen or if they've wondered even why they themselves have fallen so often. For those who are weary of all of the confession over and over again. For those who are Distraught maybe with a sense of hopelessness that they are in a position that they'll never be out of. For those who have maybe given up hope of really ever overcoming their besetting sins. For all those kinds of fears, Paul adds this verse and this truth. Don't forget, by the way, as he writes this, Paul's writing to a group of people who had a terrible past. A group of people who had been called out of lives full of brokenness and full of sin, full of sexual immorality of the grossest kind, full of all kinds of drunkenness, full of anger and malice and manipulation, 
full of a, a world of, uh, uh, of disappointment, coming out of a city that was renowned because of its temptation and its vulgar and depraved behavior, coming out of that kind of environment. He's writing to those kinds of people who are surrounded with those kinds of circumstances and who are, uh, who are saddled with that kind of baggage, we would say. And yet he tells them, even in spite of all of that that's against them, that there is no temptation which will overtake them, that it will necessarily defeat them. Not one. Not one. A group of people who, by the way, had already given in to temptation over and over again. They had had less than a stellar beginning to their Christian life. Much of this book is written as a rebuke to a group of people not living as God would design them to live. And yet Paul writes to tell them there's no temptation that's too strong for them. For all of us, all of you who are weary of the battle, all of you who are weary of confessing the same failures over and over again, All of you who grow cynical about the possibility of true holiness or doubtful about what appears to be the testimony of others who seem to live in victory. For all those who feel that the battle is too long or the progress is too small. For all those tempted and then tempted to give up, to forget about the battle and befriend the enemy. Redefine victory as compromise. Paul wants you to know that not only is the battle very, very serious, but it's winnable. You have every reason to have hope for victory. And these are the reasons why. Paul spells them out here in this verse, this one single verse, a remarkable statement addressing the misconceptions of the battle with sin. Remarkable statement Addressing all the common lies that we tell ourselves when we are battling against sin. Countered here with the glorious truths of God's faithfulness. Paul presents it, you'll see in this verse, as one grand negative statement. There is no temptation. But he really highlights a number of falsehoods, we might say regarding temptation that we have to fight against. Paul lists them here in this verse. He says, first of all, we have to fight against or we have to reject the idea that there's no point in fighting. That's his first point here. There is no point in fighting. That's what a lot of people tell themselves. Perhaps they failed too many times or perhaps they're weary of confessing the same things. Perhaps they think that the area of temptation that they're in is somehow so obscure or maybe they think that it won't be noticed by others or maybe they think it really won't matter in the end. Maybe they think that no one will really care when they give in this time. And so they conclude it's no big deal. But it is a big deal. It's a big deal if you understand what temptation is. Not just the sin, but the temptation itself. The word temptation comes from the Greek word perasmos. It is 
an interesting word used multiple times throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated temptation, but sometimes it's translated trial or even testing. And the New Testament writers wouldn't necessarily make a sharp distinction between these two as we sometimes do. A temptation, a test, a trial. In fact, you could even translate this verse. No trial has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond your ability. But with the trial, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's the way you can understand this word. It is, it is two sides, if you will, of the same coin. A trial and a temptation. And you see it used this way interchangeably throughout. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip over to James chapter 1. One of the clearest places you see this in all of the Bible. James opens up this first chapter in verse 2 by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, perosmos, same word there, trials of various kinds. And you keep reading down in the chapter, you go down to verse 12 even, and he uses the same word. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, same word, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He's using this word in a very clear sense of that kind of trial that might discourage us, that might generate pessimism. But I want you to notice in verse 13. Because then he says this, let no one say when he is tempted. That's the same word. It's the same word in Greek, same root, I should say. This is a participial form. Now, no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God himself cannot tempt with evil, and he himself tempts no one. All of these are derivatives of the same word. The same root, James is just using it interchangeably as the context demands and the context determines for us what that meaning is. It's interesting message that James is giving us here. God, he says, sins, tests, but he doesn't give temptation. He sends circumstances. He allows pressures and various situations into our lives, all of which God intends to use in our lives for our good to produce certain things and to produce certain traits of our character. God allows those things to come into our life for His reasons, to make us strong. But at the same time, James is very careful to say that while God sends the trial or the test, It is not God who brings the inward solicitation to do evil because of the test. James says this after he says in verse 13, let no one say he's tempted by God or I'm being tempted by God. He goes on in verse 14, each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his own desire. That's where the temptation comes from. Not from your circumstances, from within you, he says. And then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, he says, my brothers. Every 
good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. That's all God gives. He gives only good things. He gives only good gifts. God will bring a test. God will bring a trial for your spiritual benefit, your spiritual maturity. But it's your own desire, your own heart, your own flesh, which then takes and turns those trials into enticements to do evil, to respond with complaining, to respond with revenge, with indulgence, with whatever. So don't believe the lie that when you're experiencing a temptation, that there's no point to the battle. No matter how obscure that temptation may be, no matter how secluded it may be, locked away in some dark corner or some closet, no matter how few people may know about it, Don't believe the lie that it doesn't matter. That there's not some test. Something God's doing in your character. I'll never forget the first time I, first night I was in China. And I I sort of unpacked my bags and kind of got acclimated with my room. And I sat down on the side of my bed. And it was night and... Time to kind of turn in. And I remember I was sitting there thinking, are you going to pray? No one's going to ask you. No one will see. No one will care. Not all that important. You've got time to do it later. I remember, I remember sitting down my very first night of a, a two-year stint on the mission field and battling with that. A temptation which was, by all accounts, obscure, unnoticeable, didn't matter. But it did matter. Because God was doing something in my heart, in my character. See, that's what, this, is what, this is what temptation is. This is why you can't believe the lie that it doesn't matter. This is why you can't believe the lie that there's no point in fighting it. This is why you can't believe the lie that because you lost last time and the time before and the time before and you've fallen over and over again, that this time it doesn't matter. It does matter. Every one of those trials, every one of those tests is sent to you by God to do something. To do something in your heart and in your life. And instead of allowing those things to create within you bitterness and disappointment or even accusation against God because of the difficulty in your life, Rather than allowing those things to to turn into you some sort of bitter attitude and anger against God or even against others. Instead, James says, you and I ought to be counting it joy. We ought to be counting it joy. We should be thankful to God for the struggles because of what it's doing in us spiritually. Israel out in the desert should have been thankful to God for the hunger and the thirst and the wondering and the, and the, and the, the amount of time. They should have been thankful. So the key is not to believe the lie that the battle's pointless. The key is that when you face the trial, you realize that this is an opportunity. 
to make spiritual progress. When you're facing the mounting stress of a situation or a project, when you feel the threat of failure or rejection or whatever it is, the key is tell yourself, I'm going to rejoice in what God's doing in my life through this. I'm going to rejoice to see my weakness. I'm going to rejoice to see my need for God all over again. I'm going to rejoice to be at the end of my personal resources and have to find my all in all once again in the Lord. I'm going to rejoice in that. Your test could be someone out there who didn't live up to whatever you were expecting from them. You can face that and you say, I'm going to rejoice that God has brought this person into my life. I'm going to rejoice in the opportunity to return love for evil. I'm going to rejoice in the opportunity to show the character of Christ to someone who has rejected me because I once rejected him. Rejoice rather than give rise to the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the malicious gossip. Whether it's a marital test or parental, financial, vocational, relational, medical, whatever it is. Test is meant to produce within you repentance, humility, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We could highlight a second falsehood this verse tackles. We could add to our first that there is also the lie here. No one has been tempted like I have been tempted. No one's been tempted like I've been tempted. We always want to try and conceive of ourselves in our circumstances as somehow different. And then sometimes we tell ourselves... That if, if we could find different circumstances than what we're in, then we would be different. That if we had maybe different backgrounds or different surroundings or different friends. Sometimes we tell ourselves if we had a different wife or a different husband, that we would be different. Or somehow we convince ourselves that if we had more money or if we had less stress or if we had more freedom or if we had less responsibility, that somehow we would be different. And we begin to tell ourselves this little lie that no one faces the same kind of struggles that I face. I am unique. But to believe those lies and try to convince yourself that no one's experiencing temptation like you are and to use it as an excuse to give in or sometimes as an excuse just to run away is foolish. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man. Anthropinos is the word. It simply means man-like, human-like. That is to say, temptation is a common human experience, common to everyone. It is a part of being human. That's what he's saying. And so if you are human, you face temptation. It doesn't matter if, it, if the person appears to have all the resources and all the connections and all the power and all the support in the world. If they are human, they face temptation. That's the point. On the outside, they may seem like they have it all together. But if you face temptation, you're facing the same thing that millions and millions and billions of people 
all over the world and throughout all time have faced. Not to say we don't all have unique experiences and backgrounds and we all have unique families and homes that we came out of. Some of us came out of messed up homes. Some of us came out of great homes. Some of us were born to great opportunity. Some of us were born to oppression. Some of us have had great education. Some of us had no education. But no matter what your circumstances, there is an element of us and our flesh that is all the same. That's what Paul's saying. There's an element of us that is constantly prideful and vengeful and covetous and self-indulgent and irresponsible and lazy and double-tongued and forgetful. Forgetful of God and forgetful of others. There's an element of us just because we're human that no matter what our circumstances, we face those same things. We all, of course, have our own weaknesses and our own propensities or our influences in our life. The Scripture is very clear about that. The thing that's common to all of us is a sinful nature. The thing that's common to all of us is temptation. No matter what your situation, your flesh presses against it. Your faith is being challenged. Your patience is being tried. Your faithfulness is being tested. There's no difference from anyone else, Paul says. This is common to everyone. Thirdly, Paul would have us reject the idea that temptation is too much to resist. He wants us to reject the idea that temptation is too much to resist. Not only are temptations common to men, but he says God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That is to say, every test, every trial, and therefore every temptation that may elicit from it is limited by God. God puts boundaries, as it were, on these trials that He allows into your life regarding the timing or the circumstances or the people who are involved or the consequences involved. God puts boundaries. He puts limitations on all those things because He understands you. He knows you and what your weaknesses are. I love that prayer whenever whenever Jesus is talking to Peter there in Luke 22, and he says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And he understood Simon, and he understood that he was going to face this trial and this temptation, and he understood that there needed to be some sort of limitation on it. There needed to be some help if he's going to stand in the day. No believer then can claim that somehow he's overwhelmed by temptation. No believer could ever legitimately claim that there's anything as too great a temptation or that the devil made me do something. Not even Satan can cross the boundaries that God sets. You remember the story in Job? Job comes to accuse, uh, Satan comes to accuse Job. And he says to God, if you will do these things in his life, if you will take away all of his blessings, he will curse you. And God tells him, look, you can take away his blessings. He goes and takes away his blessings and he doesn't curse God. And he comes back and he says, look, but if you'll take away his health, then he'll curse you. 
And he goes and he says, yes, you can do that, but you cannot take his life. See, God's always setting boundaries. God's always putting limitations. They come to arrest Jesus in the garden, all the soldiers there with all of their armor and their weapons, and, and they're coming, and, the, and Jesus is there with his disciples. They show up in the garden, and Jesus asks them, who are you coming for? And they say, Jesus of, of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And to clarify them, he says, now, who are you coming for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I'm he. And he's doing that not just to be troublesome to them. He's doing that in order to clarify that those who are with him are not a part of the arrest warrant. In fact, John himself goes on in that very chapter to say that God did this in order to, quote, fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Isn't that amazing? God knows your weakness and He knows your frailty and He knows your limitations. So He puts boundaries. And so whatever you're facing and you think that it's more than you can handle and you think that you would have never gone into this had you known all of the circumstances and you think that somehow anyone else would cave you need to realize God's doing something in your life. He's put it there. You need to realize that it isn't something that's unique just to you. You need to realize God's not going to allow it to go further than it needs to go. He won't allow it to last longer. He won't allow it to hurt more deeply. He won't allow it to ruin you so utterly that it's irrecoverable. God sends these things but he puts a limit. This is, what, uh, this is what Paul's saying to us. God is faithful. This is what you've got to trust. This is what you've got to cling to. This is what you've got to believe in the midst of these trials. He's faithful. I mean, you can't see how God's going to do all this, but you can believe in him. You can believe that it's not the wrong time, the wrong circumstances, the wrong consequences. You can believe all that because of who God is. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. This is God's response when we pray, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. He will not let us experience anything we can't meet the test with. Fourthly, Paul wants us to reject the idea that the only way out of this temptation is to give in. He wants us to reject the idea that the only way out of this temptation is to give in. This is, the, this is the reality, Paul says, that with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. The way of escape, he says. Paul speaks about the way of escape. He uses a definite article, singular noun, the way. The only way, the way which God has prescribed, one that He has ordained, the definitive way that God desires, and that way with every temptation, no matter what it is, that way is through it. That's the only way of escape. 
the blazing house that you're in, the only way is to run through the blaze and out the back door. As I say, the way of escaping a temptation is to realize that there's a purpose in it, that there's something to be gained by it, to realize that God can use it in your faith and in your character to see what He's doing and to endure because of it. There's a way to better understand God, a way to be deeper in your faith, a way to be stronger in your character, a way to see your own need more and more, a way to grow your own prayer life and your own understanding of God's truth, a way to see growth take place where it needs to. So the way out is to embrace the struggle. To embrace the challenge, to accept it, as James says, with joy, and to endure it. That's the way of escape. Whether we have a test by God to prove our righteousness, or a test, we might even sometimes say by Satan, to induce sin, there's only one way to pass the test. The way of escape is to endure. He sees us through, Paul says. The very end of the verse, so that we're able to endure. So that we're able to endure. Hupo pharaoh literally mean it. It means to get under and carry something. It's not normally the way we want to face these kinds of situations. Usually, we're looking for a quick and easy route, something that will be as unburdensome as possible. Paul says there is a way. The way is to remain under it. To endure it as a test. To view that as God using this to bring about spiritual maturity in our lives and to rejoice. Those are the lies that people tell themselves. This is the way people respond. When they face temptation, they believe these falsehoods Paul says you can't. You can't. These are the things you have to reject. Someone might ask though, if I reject these, how could I be better prepared though for a trial? How can I really be better prepared so that I can be aware? So that I can be alert? So that I can be cognizant of the battle and the warfare that's going on. So that I can reject the lies and I can believe the truth. Well, Paul doesn't explicitly lay them out here. But there's several that are given to us in scripture that we might tag on here in the battle with temptation. Just several things that we need to do if we're going to win. We've mentioned a few already. Embrace the challenge would be one. Embrace the challenge. Count it all joy, James says. Number two would be ponder the enslaving power of sin. You remember over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul has already spelled this out to us. He says in 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by any. So one of the things we need to do is, is to ponder the enslaving power of sin. So that we properly... Fear it, Romans 6.16. 
we could add to this, where it says there, Do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you once were slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you've been committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So then, present yourselves as slaves of righteousness. See, we need to ponder all the time the dangers of sin. Small as they may be when they begin, they have an enslaving power. Brief as that indulgence may be, it has a grip. And it wants to hold tighter. Thirdly, we need to cut off opportunity for sin. Romans tells us this, Romans 13, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So we need to cut off opportunity, we need to get rid of those things in our life that we know will regularly lead us to temptation. We need to purify our hearts and minds in our lives. Fourthly, we may... Add this, stay steadfast in prayer. Jesus told his disciples in the garden, keep watch and pray so that you will not come into temptation. We ought to always be praying to the Lord, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Number five, we could add with that, confess your need. Or or, or we might even say, humble yourself. This is... What, James, what Peter tells us, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. And be sober-minded, watchful, because your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You need to humble yourself. You need to humble yourself. Cast your care on God. Number six, you need to fill your heart with the Word of God. I admit I probably should have listed this first because the longer I go in my own Christian life, the more I realize the absolute necessity of daily feeding my heart and my mind on the truth of the Word of God, bathing it in the crystal clear water of God's Word. The old saying is true. This book, this Bible will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this Bible. And so we read about Jesus' own temptation in Matthew chapter 4. And when he's confronted with sin, what does he do? He responds in every scenario, it is written, it is written, he says, over and over again. Romans 8, 5 says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That is the Word of God. We hide God's Word in our hearts so that we might not sin against Him. You cannot settle on past knowledge. You cannot be content with Bible school lessons. You must daily be recapturing your heart and mind with the glories of God and Christ in this book. You must be reading about His mercy 
You must be reading about His sufficiency. You must be wondering and in awe again at your lostness and the wonderful Savior we have. And then finally, embrace the opportunity to glorify God. Embrace the opportunity to glorify God. This is where Paul eventually goes in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 10, excuse me. When you get down to the end of the chapter. And Paul says this in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, do all that you do for the glory of God. I mean, that's really the backdrop of everything he's saying in all this chapter. That's why he beats his own body and brings it into submission. That's why he puts away his own preferences. That's why he denies himself and yields himself over to God again and again. Second Peter, excuse me, first Peter chapter two. Peter draws a similar connection when he says this in verse eleven of first Peter two. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Listen, you will not overcome temptation if you are not in love with the glory of God. If you are not worshiping Him you relegate it just Sunday morning and think that it's a few songs here, gathering together with other Christians, you're not daily communing before Him, you're not absolutely enthralled once again with the glory of God, you won't overcome. You won't understand. Everything in your life ought to be aiming for that purpose. You don't have to give in. You don't have to believe the lies. You haven't been abandoned with no resources. You can overcome the fight. Just take heed lest you fall. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, how grateful we are this morning for your word, which reminds us of every resource you've given us in Christ. We thank you that even when we fail, you have given us provision. You've given us an answer, an advocate. Given us atonement. Lord, how grateful we are for our Savior. How thankful we are for His cross. How weak and prone to wondering is our heart. Yet, Lord, we don't want to take that as any excuse to quit fighting. Lord, help us to embrace the truths of this verse. Help us to live by them. Help us to know that there is no situation, no temptation which ought ever be missed as an opportunity to grow in our faith, glorify you, to trust in your resources, to find victory in Christ. Pray all these things in Christ's name.